Merry Christmas. After four weeks of Advent, anticipating the coming of Jesus, it finally feels good to be able to say it. And I find myself saying it often. During this past week, we have been absorbed with the infancy narratives of Jesus from the Gospels of Matthew and Luke. They have been prominent in our readings so far, our music and the stories that we have been telling. Last Sunday, we heard from the Gospel of Matthew and got the Christmas story from Joseph's perspective. We saw that Joseph, who wasn't so sure about having a pregnant bride, was considering breaking his engagement with Mary quietly so as not to disgrace her. But an angel intervened and told him in a dream that the child was of the Holy Spirit and that he should be married and name the child Jesus. On Christmas Eve, we heard the story from the Gospel of Luke, undoubtedly the story that many of us think about when we think about Christmas. We were transported to Bethlehem to watch the evening unfold. We may have felt Mary's discomfort from riding a donkey all those miles while nine months pregnant. We may have sensed the weariness, the anxiety of the couple ready to give birth with no place to stay. We heard the front desk clerk telling Joseph that the inn was full, but there was a stable in the back. And many of us are never quite sure to be grateful or angry that they were put in a manger. And some of us, our noses may have even anticipated the slight stench of the stable as Mary and Joseph entered. It wasn't ideal, but I imagine Mary was so relieved to lie down and not have her firstborn by the side of the road. Luke's Jesus for me, and I suspect for many of us, will always be arrayed in the swaddling clothes of the King James Version as he coos and he cries through his first night. We may imagine the shepherds minding their flocks when the sky lit up around them and the angels announced the birth of the Savior. For to you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is the Messiah, the Lord. And then the angel band commenced playing. The birth in the manger and the subsequent announcement to the shepherds tell the story of the incarnation. The babe in the manger is the Lord. The babe in the manger is our Savior. But what about today's reading from John? We have just heard the first 18 verses from the first chapter of John. This is always the gospel that we read in Episcopal churches the Sunday after Christmas. The Gospel of John doesn't provide an infant narrative at all. And John the Baptist will baptize an infant Jesus before the first chapter comes to an end. We're told of the incarnation, God becoming man. But the first chapter of John catapults us to the beginning of time. And it even mimics Genesis to make that point. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning. All things came into being through him. 
So in less than a week's time, our lectionary has moved us from the babe in the manger to master designer Jesus, who is God pre-existing before the universe. Some of us may actually be happy to have John the Baptist show up in this uh, reading today because he seems the one concrete thing that we can embrace. He's the man who came to testify about Jesus. John, we get. The portrayal of Jesus is a bit harder to grasp. It's harder to identify with John's prologue because of its literary character. It's not a narrative like the Luke and the manger story. In fact, if you pull out all the references to John the Baptist in that Gospel of John, you will see that it's actually a hymn. And this actually is a hymn that the early church used in some of its early liturgies. The prologue is dense in theology, and some would even say that those 18 verses capture the whole thrust of John's gospel. John seems to be saying in all caps, people, pay attention. God is among us. It's difficult to wrap our brains around it, or it is for me, because I can't envision that. I think we may gravitate toward the manger scene because we can picture it. We may not have spent any time in a manger, but living in the South, we all can envision a barn. And also there's ample imagery of Jesus' nativity. If you Google the nativity in Google Images, you will get page after page after page of pictures and drawing and sketches of a nativity scene. And I suspect that there are many of us who have crushes in our home right now. We also had the live image of the nativity here last Sunday with dozens of our children dressed as angels and shepherds and sheep. And they were gathered in the chancel around Mary, Joseph, and the baby during the Christmas pageant. But it's difficult to gather the children to recreate the image conjured up by the prologue. There are no Christmas cards on point, and we can't put it on the mantle. And if you Google the prologue of John, they're just, the images aren't there, or they're just really strange. So I started thinking, what would it be if we actually could have some image of John's prologue like we have of the manger? When the Nobel Prize Committee this year awarded the prize for physics to Peter Higgs and Francois Anglaire for predicting that the Higgs boson particle existed, they provided just the spark for my imagination. Higgs and Anglaire are particle physicists who proposed back in the 1960s that there was a subatomic particle smaller than an atom that existed in the universe that gave all other particles their mass. This particle had never been detected, but they theorized that without this particle, all other particles would fly off into a gazillion directions. And gazillion is my word, not theirs. This particle became known as the Higgs boson, and multiple Higgs bosons clumped together 
create what is known as the Higgs boson field. And this Higgs boson field has been described as the molasses that holds everything together. So for 50 years now, physicists have assumed that this particle existed and they've factored it into their equation sight unseen. But that changed in July of 2012 when at the Large Hadron Collider in Geneva, Switzerland, scientists detected the first, the first Higgs boson. It was the first one that they had ever captured by their measurements. Basically, beams of protons were smashed together in their 17-mile round Hadron Collider, the particle accelerator. And the Higgs was detected in the energy from a collision of protons and it exists for an infinitesimal moment of time. If you saw the number for it, it's a, it's a decimal point with many, many zeros before you get to the one. Now, some of the media outlets call the Higgs boson the God particle, because undoubtedly that's good press and it sells papers and advertisement. And the scientists will tell you that this is a critical finding, but they won't be so bold in their claim because there's still many questions to be asked. But the boson, the Higgs boson now proven, will let research expand in many, many other directions. But for our purposes, this experiment has unveiled a particle of God's universe, a slice of our creation mystery that has to date been elusive to science. And now we have a brightly colored model of this particle. At this point, I was going to ask you to pull out your phones and Google this to see this image. But I also realized that I would never bring you back into the sermon. So imagine with me, if you will, perfectly, perfectly ordered spirals, perfectly ordered spirals. There's a spray going in this direction and a spray going in this one and one here and one there. Some of you may actually remember the spirograph. Uh, it was a drawing toy that I used when I was growing up. And the Higgs boson images looked like sort of an enhanced over-the-top spirograph mathematical drawing. And while they are indeed flat images, you sense in those images the pulsing energy, the movement, and the amazing grace in that particle. And remember, we are talking about subatomic particles. When I look at the order and the splendor of this Higgs boson, my theology is not challenged, but it's absolutely enhanced. And I think of the splendor and the majesty of God's creation. If this is subatomic, what must the whole be? And this has become my image of the beginning of John's prologue. So now, instead of one image at Christmas, I now carry two in my imagination. 
I have Jesus of the manger, and I have Jesus of the Higgs boson. So why does our lectionary put us in the manger and then yank us back to the beginning of time? Well, I think that's simple. The story of the incarnation is much too large to be contained in just one version. Luke impresses on us that God became man in the stable. But John shouts, do not forget that it is indeed God that has existed before all creation who became man. We need all the gospel accounts to give us the fullest sense of the mystery of the incarnation. Jesus is fully human and fully divine. When we have heard both accounts, how could one version ever suffice? I suspect that there's another reason that we're given the God of the manger and the God of the Higgs boson so close together in our lectionary. I think if we stay in the, in the nativity for a while, that we might have a tendency to try to domesticate Jesus and keep him in that manger. That's a sentimental Jesus we can handle who wasn't there at the beginning of creation. We domesticate the God of creation. We may do that. We may want God to fulfill our image of what God is. There is a scene in the movie, Talladega Nights, <laughs> where race car driver Ricky Bobby, played by Will Ferrell, is saying grace over a fast food meal of KFC, Domino's, and Taco Bell. And they're all provided by his racing sponsors. You may remember, Ricky Bobby directs his prayer to dear Lord baby Jesus. But when his wife challenges him for always praying to baby Jesus, he digs in his heels and he tells her that when she says grace, she can say it to the teenage Jesus, to the grown-up Jesus, to the bearded Jesus, or whatever Jesus she wants. However, he likes the Christmas Jesus, the eight-pound, six-ounce, omnipotent one. <laughs> On the flip side of Ricky Bobby, though, perhaps there's some of us who are comfortable with creation, the idea of God of creation, and we need to be reminded of the incarnate Christ in the manger who is fully human in every regard, right down to his dirty diaper. There's a, a tiny yet very potent book on my bookshelves, and it's called Your God is Too Small. It was written by J.B. Phillips in the 60s, I believe, and a seminary professor recommended this book to a room full of would-be seminarians, and this was over 15 years ago. And just reading the spine of that book causes me to wince in recognition. He suggests that we invariably hold on to all sorts of wrong-headed ideas about God, and then he proceeds to knock down these unreal gods one by one as if they're a carnival game. First goes the resident policeman God, and then goes the meek and mild God, and then the grand old man God but he also knocks down who he calls the God in a box, 
the God he claims that we have captured, tamed, and trained to our own liking. So the Gospels give us a rich portrayal of the origins of Jesus and his incarnation. And our lectionary leads us to these two different versions so we don't domesticate Jesus to suit our own purposes. So if we can hold the Jesus of the manger in tension with the, jig, uh, with the Jesus of the Higgs boson, the Jesus of creation, I think we may just capture the spirit of the New Testament writers and get the best sense of the incarnation and what this Christmas season is all about. So next week on the Epiphany, we will travel with the Magi as they journey to visit, to visit the newborn king and bring him gifts. And do you remember the star that led them to the manger? If you're like me, you may have in your mind a flat five-pointed star above the manger. But when you leave today, you've got some homework. Google that Higgs boson image and I suspect that you will never think of the star that led the Magi to the manger in the same way again.